We're in week two of a brief little series here for a couple weeks called Yikes. And as Chris just read that passage, you can understand why we're calling it Yikes. You hear something like that and you say, that's in the Bible? And you're going to preach about that? I said the same thing to myself this week, in fact. The lesson of Judges and the lesson of this passage today is simply this. I'll tell you at the outset, and we'll unpack this and look at it throughout the passage here. The lesson is this. When you and I, when we fail to walk with God, we walk at the edge of an abyss, a deep, dark pit. That's where God's people found themselves at the end of this book of Judges here. They were in a dark hole. It was an ugly place. Their situation was grim and felt hopeless. You ever been in situations like that where where you felt, I'm about to die. This is the end of it. There is no hope. I feel so grim that I think this is it. There was one time for me where I felt like this. I was a kid growing up in Southern California. We lived there for about uh, five years. Uh, my dad was a minister at, uh, on staff at a church in, uh, sound, in Southern California there. And I was probably about six years old. And I felt like I was going to die. But it was at a place that was supposed to be fun and happy. I felt like I was going to die at the playground. It was one of those few times for me where you've experienced that feeling of a grim situation. You're about to meet your doom. I was at uh, Balboa Park in Encino. Any of you who know Southern California know where Encino is. Uh, It was just a couple blocks from my house, that big, huge park there. I had a love affair with the playground. It was the best in that whole area. I remember it very well because there was a big, huge maze there, a playground with a, a big maze. And it had twists and turns where, where literally dozens of kids all at one time could play together and, and run and jump and, uh, and, and get into all sorts of little nooks and crannies in that maze. It was the perfect place for hide-and-seek. I don't exactly remember the circumstances, but I remember being stuck in the middle of a small tunnel there in that playground structure. And there were some not-so-nice kids on either side who thought it would be hilarious to keep me in there for a couple minutes. At least it felt like a couple minutes. You know, I think, I think as a kid of six, at first, I tried to laugh it off and, 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 and try to play it off like it wasn't a big deal. But I was done laughing, and I started kicking and screaming for my life. I felt like if I don't get out of this place, it's over. It's sort of humorous, but that's what I felt like as a kid. You know, it's like that experience, and maybe you've you've, you've felt this. It's like being held underwater by that older-than-you, stronger-than-you bully in the swimming pool. Daggone Andrew Mansfield. That was my experience at my friend's house, being held under and feeling like, I am not going to make it. A kind of helpless and hopeless situation that felt very grim to me. Some of you are saying, that explains it. Have you ever felt like that rock bottom, stuck in the middle, can't get out of it? This story from the book of Judges today 
is exactly that kind of feeling. Its overall message here is that God's people self-destruct when they disobey God. And when their values are shaped by their pagan neighbor's values. In this case, their values are being shaped by the Canaanites. Judges is about Israelites becoming Canaanized. And as we'll see in this story today, the world's evil practices had sort of infiltrated the Israelites. Our story runs from Judges 19 through the end of chapter 21. It describes a a miserable failure to love one's neighbor. It describes the last in a number of stories in the book of Judges that show a downward spiral for the people of God. The story is dark. It's grim. We read something like this and we want to say to ourselves, why not skip to the end? Why not go on to something more upbeat? Here's the deal. I don't want you to miss today's yikes moment in Scripture. Because God has something powerful to say, even in those moments, about our lives. And about our church. About the people of God. It's a grim story. But there is hope at the end of the tunnel even here. And when we see in full measure what grace looks like in relief compared to the grim circumstances that we find ourselves in sometimes. That makes victory that much sweeter, friends. When we open the curtain on Judges 19, we see that there are two people on stage. Two people. A wanderer from the tribe of Levi and his concubine from Bethlehem. Now, a concubine here was sort of a legal wife with a lower secondary status who came from a lower social economic situation, usually. She was a little bit higher than a slave and had few inheritance rights, but she was probably taken for sexual gratification which is a foreshadowing of the sort of moral degradation that begins in this story. When we see them here in this scene, this Levite and this concubine in Judges 19, we find that she has been unfaithful and has returned to her parents' home. And now her husband, this Levite, has persuaded her to come home. In fact, he's gone to her home to get her. And he's at her in-laws to get her back and return her home. But here's the situation he finds himself in. He can't get away from them. He can't get away from his in-laws. The narrator narrator doesn't tell us why the father-in-law does this, but whatever the reason, he continues for four straight nights, for five days total, to, to, to practice almost ridiculous hospitality to this Levite, to try to keep him there. Oh, stay another night. Enjoy the time together. For four nights, the father-in-law convinces this Levite to stay another night. And finally, toward the end of day five, this Levite and his concubine, they head for home. And here's where we begin to set the context for our passage today. It's late in the day as they're leaving, and they don't get very far from Bethlehem. And when it's time to turn in for the night, the Levite's servant suggests 
going to Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. That was another word for Jerusalem. Jerusalem simply occupied by the Jebusites. You see, Jerusalem was occupied with non-Israelites at this time. So the Levite says, no way, no way, man. We are not going into any city where the people are not the people of God, where the people are not the Israelites. We will go to Gebeah. Gebeah is a city in that territory that was given to the Israelite tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he is saying, this Levite is saying, this, this city, this Gebeah place, this is one of our own. Let's go there instead of Jebus. This is one of our own, so they, they felt safe going there. But as we already know, they were in for a surprise. In contrast to this father-in-law who showed almost ridiculous hospitality, we see the opposite here in their own city of Gebeah. That's important to remember for this story. We pick up in chapter 19, verses 14 to 15. Judges 19, verses 14 to 15. This is where we pick up. It says, So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Verse 15, And they turned aside there to go in and to spend the night at Gebeah. The Levite and the concubine, they decide, let's go ahead and stay in this Gebeah place. So he went in, and they sat down in the open square of that city there. For no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now, for us, that doesn't exactly sound uh, inhospitable. I mean, why should we be surprised that strangers didn't take them in? Why would they be surprised? Well, we might not do that nowadays. If somebody comes by your house uh, who you've never met and is from a far-off city, you are not going to let them stay at your house, I'm guessing. But in that culture, in that day, for them to stay at that city square and to not be invited anywhere was an outrage, actually. In the ancient world before Comfort Inn and Holiday Inn, citizens of any city were expected to provide a place to stay for travelers coming through. You just sort of wait around the city square for someone to take you in for a small fee. It was sort of like an ancient Priceline.com. And for the people, for the people of a city to be hospitable, I'm sorry, to, to refuse to be hospitable would be like refusing to stop for a distressed motorist whose car is broken down and is motioning for help and you've got all the time in the world and all the skills available and the, the opportunity to help. So eventually as they're sitting in the square, an old man invites them into his house for the night. And while the group was enjoying themselves, this is in verses 20 and following here, 22. As this group was enjoying themselves, there was a pounding at the door. The wicked men of this city of Gebeah, they knew that strangers were passing through. They knew that some strangers were in town, so they demanded that the old man bring out the Levite so that they could have their way with him. The old man, Scripture tells us, was, was horrified by this. But he did something even more horrible. He offered these wicked men pounding at his own door, his own virgin daughter, and the Levite's concubine. 
Now, if this story sounds a little bit familiar, it should, because it resembles another sad and, and sordid tale in the Bible that many of us might know well, the story of Lot's visit to Sodom and Gomorrah. So back here in Judges, it's Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. But this time, this time, it's in one of our own cities. Don't miss that. This time, it's in one of our own cities. The writer of the book of Judges is telling us, this is how bad, friends, this is how bad it has gotten for the people of God in the Old Testament. By the end of Judges, he was using examples like this to say, folks, this is the picture of when we forget God. This is the deep abyss into which our lives and our communities' lives and our churches' lives go into if we don't walk with God. The old man pleads with these wicked men not to do such an outrageous thing. But the narrator tells us, verses 25 and 26, the narrator tells us in these verses that his plea, this old man's plea, was ignored. Verses 25 and 6 say this, The men would not listen to him. So the man, that is the old man, he seized the concubine of the Levite and made her go out with them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. Verse 26, As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This is obviously a, a heartbreaking tragedy. You, you think about what's going on for these poor, these poor girls, this concubine. You want to rescue her as an, as an innocent bystander. She's been severely abused. The Hebrew here in the, in the Scripture here says it plainly and very starkly. It just says... They knew her. They knew her intimately. They knew her. They abused her. They discarded her. And the next morning, the concubine was dead. The husband finds her on the doorstep and takes her quietly out of the town to his own home. And what happens next is yet another yikes moment when the Levite when the Levite reached home, he dismembered her into twelve parts, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, and he sent them out, one to each tribe, like, like sort of breaking news for all to hear. Everyone who saw it and began to hear the story because it was being told, began to hear about that atrocity, said things like this in verses 29 and 30. Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. What's going on here? Why would this Levite do this? Friends, in this culture, this was a call to arms. In that ancient culture in which Israel lived, his action functioned as a call to war. In 1 Samuel 11, the 7th chapter, 
First Samuel, the 11th chapter, we learn that King Saul did the same to call the people of Israel to war by cutting an ox into pieces and shipping them to places throughout Israel. And we see here that the call to arms worked. In our text this morning, we pick up in verse 1 of, of chapter 20. We see in our text, it says, The people of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, are all gathered for war. Let's reread our text again here, verses 1 through 7. It says this, Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Verse 3, Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and he said, I came to Gebeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gebeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. Verse 6, So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. What follows after this, you can read for yourself. Basically, the tribes come together and eventually attack and almost entirely destroy the tribe of Benjamin. We're seeing a civil war begin to happen here. From this point onward in the book of Judges, it's, it's a downward spiral. The people of God were in the middle of a civil war. And the narrator ends the book with what will become a familiar refrain in the history of the people of God. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. By the end of the story of Judges, the rape of one woman had multiplied into the rape of 600 women. The people of God had become thoroughly paganized. They'd fallen apart because they had adopted their values from the surrounding culture. And they began to kill themselves from the inside. There are lots of things we could probably say about stories like this. Lots of questions we could ask. But I want to take the story as an opportunity for us to examine our current condition. Our current condition. I want to suggest to you that the abrupt end of this story is a deliberate strategy of the narrator. The book of Judges is a well-crafted story, and the ending is no exception. So by the ending of this book in this way, we are forced to reckon with its lessons. First, the author here in Judges forces God's people to take a hard look at their condition. For you and me, that means taking a hard look at the church today and seeing and naming the places we have failed. 
If the book of Judges is an honest testimony of the Israelites' failings as a history that's not to be repeated, then where we have failed must likewise become lessons of history for us. Do you see the modern church in this story? As I look around at the carnage and the wreckage in this story, I think of some of the carnage and the wreckage from our own churches. And what is so appalling about it that is parallel to this story is that this isn't Sodom and Gomorrah. This is our own place. What's appalling is so much of it is self-inflicted. We say things like this. We're losing our youth. Sometimes we're the ones driving them away. Words like this don't seem to fit, but we've all experienced them within the body. Apathy, bitterness, jealousy, anger, racism, resentment, hostility, cheating, immorality, greed. We've all known and seen this in the body of Christ. I could introduce you to pastors who have destroyed their churches because of theft and adultery and spouse abuse. I could introduce you to elders who have taken verbal abuse for doing what is right. I have a friend who had to stop a fist fight during a worship service. You see, friends, if we're being honest, sometimes even we have acted like inhospitable old men from Gibeah. Because he made the terrible mistake of choosing safety for himself over the safety of the people he was called to protect. Dante wrote this, "'Tis man's perdition to be safe when for truth he ought to die." What we have here in Judges is a big mess. And make no mistake, our pretty little neck of the woods is no less vicious. The world is a mess. There are 27 wars going on in the world as we speak. There are people who live in places where violence may strike and destroy at any time. There are people being mistreated exactly like this concubine in this text, and they have no recourse. The sex trade is a growing problem, beginning to rise in the consciousness of the church. Estimates show that somewhere from 800,000 plus people are trapped in the sex trade today. Even though our little corner of the world is nice, there are people around our world with not enough food, with not enough law in order, so that if they plant their crops, somebody won't come along and take the fruits of their labors in many countries. There are people around the world who have to hide their children to keep them from being taken away as slaves. Unimaginable for us and yet present in the world today. There are people around the world who sell the children they are called to protect because it winds up being safe for them. Let's be clear about this. The world 
is just as broken as the time of the judges. And this woman cut into 12 pieces is a vivid and powerful image for us thousands of years later. As awful as this text is, as awful as this text is, and as nice as we think our little world is, the lesson might be we must never become complacent. We become complacent and we become like the people of Gebeah. It's tempting to think that an appropriate response to God is just to go your merry way, go back to your homes and personally be self-righteous, live clean lives, go to church on Sundays. But in the presence of this text, please be reminded that God desperately wants you and I to be in the battle of bringing peace to a world that knows no peace. God wants your service. He wants your participation. We are called to establish here on earth a kingdom that teaches that when someone wants to attack one of our people, when someone attacks those we are called to protect, that we do not participate in their evil schemes, but we suffer on their behalf. We are the kingdom of God. People formed and called into place, called into battle by the actions of a man we worship whose body was broken. We are the people formed and called into place by a man who repelled evil from our doorsteps. I'm thankful for even this text today because it's a stern reminder that if we are going to be people of faith, we have to be willing to see ourselves and the world as they are. And we have to live differently than the world. It's not a fun text, but it's a text that shows us what can happen if we become happy-go-lucky, complacent people. The people of God forgot their way. The Israelites began to take on the values of those around them. And by the time they realized it, by the time something this egregiously disgusting had to happen to wake them up, they didn't even know they had gone there. We must never think that we are somehow exempt. It's the reason why we were called to grow, to become a body of believers where we demonstrate peace, where we demonstrate grace, where mercy is what works among us, where harsh words are met with kindness, where gossip is met with truth, where pain and suffering and difficulty and illness is met with love and compassion. The kingdom of God working here as the body of Christ has to happen so that we can be that to, to one another and to a world 
that needs to know it.